continuing our journey through Advent, partnering with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And this morning, we're turning our attention to Edmund, to that notorious eating of Turkish delight. And as we carry that story with us, we also enter into the Gospel of John. And we're joining John at chapter six, starting at verse 22. And we'll read through verse 35. So people of God, listen then for the voice of God. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, wait, pause. What happened just before chapter six? Feeding of the 5,000. We know that one, we're familiar with that. If you've come up through Sunday school, church, you know the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is teaching a crowd, super hungry, not enough bread to go around. Little boy has five loaves, two fish. Jesus breaks it, gives thanks, and feeds everyone. This story, where we enter in at John 6, is right on the heels of that story. And you'll hear reference to it a little bit later on. So now John 6, verse 22. The next day, being the next day after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. And then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. 
and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are two feasts early on in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And there are two meals, two feasts, that could not be more different from each other. The first feast crackles with danger and foreboding. It's when Edmund finds himself in the sledge of the white witch. With her white fur mantle over his shoulders, and a box with a green silk ribbon tied around it on his lap. And it is filled, that box is filled with what he hungered for the most. A few pounds of sugar-coated, rose-flavored Turkish delight. Conjured by the witch with her magic right before his eyes, and Edmund feasted on each square of delectable confection. Selling his siblings out and betraying more than he knew for a box of magical food. The second feast, the second feast exudes warmth and abundance. And it is when the four Pevensi siblings follow Mr. Beaver to the home, to his home with Mrs. Beaver, built on top of their dam. And it's in this snug and cozy home that Lewis spends several pages describing just quite how cozy and warm and wonderful it truly is. And it's there that Peter, Susan, and Lucy pitch in and help the beavers catch trout and put stuff on the oven and just generally set the table and get the feast going. And then they all tuck in (laughs) to a feast of fresh-caught fried trout boiled potatoes and buttered bread, creamy milk and beer for Mr. Beaver, and it all ends, as any good meal does, with dessert, which is a great and gloriously sticky marmalade roll, complete with a perfectly made pot of tea. As Edmund watched his siblings and the beavers pass plates and enjoy the good food in front of them, he eats his fill, but he doesn't actually really enjoy it. The memory of that first feast, that sweet taste of the magically conjured Turkish delight is still on his tongue, and it has numbed his taste buds to this second feast. As Lewis describes it later in a different chapter, he says, there is nothing that spoils the taste of good, ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad, magic food. After Edmund had snuck out of the beaver's home, driven by his hunger for more Turkish delight, Mr. Beaver confesses to Peter, Susan, and Lucy that when he first laid eyes on Edmund, he thought to himself, treacherous. He had the look, Mr. Beaver said, 
of one who has been with the witch and eaten her food. And you can always tell, you can always tell them if you've lived long enough in Narnia, something about their eyes. Now we may not be quite as harsh as Mr. Beaver, but if you've read the story, we can all be a little smug when it comes to Edmund, I think, his hunger for Turkish delight. We are quick to put some distance between us and that particular Pevensey boy. I would never sell my family out for some candy, no matter how good it is, no matter how hungry I am. And that especially goes, uh, in my own experience, of actually tasting a version of Turkish delight and being more than a little underwhelmed by the confection. For that, Edmund, come on. Edmund was a wartime kid. His life and childhood consisted of wartime rationing, of constant fear of bombs and destruction. His hunger for a box of sugary treats, which were rare in a time when sugar itself was rationed, I think also came from a hunger for his life before the war, a hunger for a taste of the world that felt safe. In a wartime world where he felt powerless and helpless, he hungered to feel powerful. And the witch offered him that with her promises to make him king. And Edmund feasted on bad magic food and on empty promises of the white witch knowing in his heart that it was wrong, knowing deep down that this wouldn't satisfy, but not being able to stop hungering and craving more of that bad magic food. Our own hunger might not lead us to devouring a whole box of Turkish delight wrapped in a green silk ribbon. But we help ourselves <laughs> to that which doesn't satisfy all the same. We hunger for a connection, for community. And so we find ourselves scrolling endlessly on our screen as the algorithm of our preferred social media platform feeds us an endless assortment of what promises to connect us with others in meaningful ways. But it seems that the more we scroll, the more we consume, the more isolated we feel, the lonelier we are, and even more unsatisfied with the life we have. We hunger for intimacy and belonging. So we close the door, and we open our computer, and we click on that link that we said we would never open again, and we gorge ourselves on the easy and undemanding naked images that porn so easily offers. Then we find that our appetite <laughs> for real human intimacy 
and closeness of a real human person is numbed and deadened and diminished. And so we go back to feast on some more of those flickering pixels. We hunger for purpose and appreciation. And so we seek out success and accolades, sacrificing our closest relationships for longer hours at work, to put in more time for that degree or that promotion or that bigger paycheck. And we find that there is always something else to achieve. There is always, always, more work to do. And there is no accolade, no achievement, no amount of money earned that ultimately satisfies our hunger for long. It is ravenous. And the more we try to satisfy our hunger, <laughs> by feasting on our own particular version of bad magic food, whatever yours might be, the more empty we feel. And the less able we are to taste and enjoy and be nourished in body and soul by the good ordinary food of life. The crowd here that seeks Jesus has a hunger too. Again, we feel kind of smug with the crowd. They just saw a miracle. They, they should know better. They should know who Jesus is. They had just feasted together with thousands on a few loaves of bread that Jesus gave thanks for, broke, and offered to everyone with more than enough to go around. And even when their stomachs were full, they hungered for more. John tells us that their intention wasn't just for more bread. <laughs> they wanted to find Jesus, forcefully put a crown on his head, and make him their king, to go up against Caesar for them. Their appetite for freedom drove them to think that whatever means necessary was going to be okay. Whatever it took to overthrow the persecution and the persecuting force in their lives. They hungered for power, and Jesus seemed to be the one who had it. John tells us that Jesus knew this, and he gave them the slip. He got away in the middle of the night and escaping their intentions for him. But they hunted him down. <laughs> First by boat, when they realized he was gone and his disciples weren't there, and then on foot. Until they stood in front of him. First demanding to know how he got away, so perhaps he couldn't do it again. And then they were ready to pick up right where they left off with him making this powerful man their king. Jesus knew what they hungered for, 
Jesus knew what drove them to him. What they would have him do for them. And Jesus confronts them about it. You hunted me down across the Sea of Galilee by foot and boat, not because you know who I really am or believe in what I say, but because you feasted on the loaves of bread. You filled your stomachs and you want more. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to life. And you gotta give it to the crowd because they are not deterred by the strength of Jesus' confrontation and pushback on them. They're like, okay, that tact didn't work, we're gonna try another question. What do we gotta do to get what you're trying to give us so you will be our king and we figure it out? And they go back and forth until at one point the crowd says, well, okay, 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 but Moses, Moses, the powerful leader of God's people, he fed God's people not just for a single afternoon, Jesus, he fed God's people for decades every day. It's a kind of an implicit challenge, right? You showed us some power, but what else do you got? Show us some more. Because I think they felt certain that with a powerful leader, a powerful leader's people doesn't go without. And the crowd, the crowd were tired of going without. And they hungered for more, for power, for protection. And then Jesus does what Jesus always does with our expectations. And he knows their hunger and he redirects it. He redirects their hunger for a powerful leader like Moses to the power and the presence of God with his people. The power and presence of God who gives bread, not Moses. And something here clicks with the crowd. And how you read their question, the tone of it, probably shows whether or not you believe something clicked or if it's just another way of getting, getting at Jesus as their king. But I think something clicks with them. I think they understand that Jesus is trying to offer them something better. And they might not have any idea exactly what it is, but I think there's something that clicks for the crowd. That they are hungry for, and if Jesus is gonna give them something that satisfies, and they say, they pray, they plead, they ask, sir, please always give us that bread. That bread. And Jesus standing before them answers their prayer declaring to them that their misdirected hunger for power, but it blinded them before, but in him is the very presence of God with them. Not just a powerful man, not just someone who does some magic tricks with bread, but the very presence of God. I am the bread of life that you hunger for. And whoever comes to me, they will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me, oh, they will never be thirsty. 
I think that first feast of loaves, the day before, I think awakened the crowd to some hunger pains they had. Hunger pains they felt for power, for the presence of a king who could save them. But they wanted to fill their bellies on a quick and easy fix. A quick coronation, an earthly king, and what would amount hopefully to a quick victory. But here Jesus just offers himself as the one who could satisfy their hunger for a king who could save them, just not the way they expected, but in the way they need. Here at this table, here at this table, a feast spread for us, Jesus meets each of us, and Jesus meets all of us. Here at this table, Jesus meets us knowing, <laughs> knowing our deep hunger for connection and community, for intimacy and belonging, for purpose and identity, and for power and protection. And Jesus knows all the ways, all of our bad magic food that we try to fill our bellies with that ultimately do not satisfy. Here at this table, Jesus stands ready to satisfy our longing, our hunger, with bread that does not spoil, with bread that gives life. And here at this table, it's the very bread of life sent from heaven that invites us to feast on good, ordinary food, bread and vine. And it is a feast that exudes warmth and abundance, not fear or scarcity. It is a feast that does not isolate us more from each other, but draws us together. And it is the very presence of God in our midst. A gift of grace. A sacrament. And it is not the way we expect, or often the way we demand. <laughs> but we are nourished in the way that we most deeply need. When Edmund is on the cusp of dying, he's hungry and thirsty. The knife of the witch is almost at his throat. Death is the inevitable outcome of eating the witch's bad magic food. It's in that moment that Aslan's rescue comes to Edmund. And Lewis describes that there are strong arms that embrace Edmund, that lift him up, that untie him, and give him wine to drink, to restore him, to strengthen him, to save him. And it is the first real food 
that Edmund is able to taste and enjoy since coming to Narnia. So this morning, this Advent season, as we journey towards the manger in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, which itself means the house of bread, I pray that you know your hunger. May you not ignore your hunger pains for deeper connection and community, for intimacy and belonging, for purpose and identity. This Advent season, may the Spirit open your eyes to all the ways that you try to find to fill that hunger with what doesn't satisfy. All your particular versions of bad magic food. And this morning, at this feast, at this table, may you know the strong arms of Jesus around you lifting you up, untying you, offering you good food and drink, which is his very body and blood for us, for your rescue, transforming you just like Edmund (laughs) from a betrayer to a beloved. And may we all feast on the good, ordinary food that Jesus offers us, which he promises to use for his extraordinary purposes in our lives, the lives of our community, and for the life of the world. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Let us pray. our giver of good gifts. You nourish us, sustain us, feed us at this table with story and food. And you satisfy us. Awaken us, awaken us to our hunger, to our longing for you, to know that Jesus is our bread of life, the only one who satisfies, the only one who feeds us, and the one who has given himself for our rescue. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.